HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit rothcheese.com. For Thanksgiving, we often will make like soul food, like Southern food. Um, So that includes like baked macaroni and cheese, greens, like collard greens. And usually you like mix in turkey in the pot, super yummy turkey's not our thing so we instead we would have a duck and we'd sometimes we'd also have like traditional filipino food turkey ham mashed potatoes macaroni and cheese very kind of southern my grandma she loves to bake so she does pound cake sweet potato pie my dad makes the best mashed potatoes And every year, my dad hides how much butter he puts in those mashed potatoes for my mother. So he'll publicly put in half a stick of butter. And then when her back is turned, him and I will add the second half. So every year, we have amazing, magical, buttery mashed potatoes. And my mom has no idea. You just heard from folks across the country about their family's Thanksgiving food traditions. And as you heard, it isn't Turkey Day for everyone. In this episode, we are looking past pumpkin pie to see how Thanksgiving dinner can differ depending on who's celebrating and where. This year, traditional family fare might look a little different, whether it's at the checkout counter, in a to-go box, or outside the U.S. entirely. Pull out some extra chairs because we're expanding our understanding of the Thanksgiving table. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and three. Meat and three. Meat and three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and three. We don't typically associate Thanksgiving with austerity and frugality, but this year that may have to change. If you've already done your Thanksgiving shopping, you may have winced when it came time to pay the cashier. Next up, Isaac Furman carves up this costly conundrum with Dr. Trey Malone. If you don't adjust for inflation, uh, this is going to be a very expensive Thanksgiving by individual price. As an agricultural economist at Michigan State, Dr. Malone specializes in these kinds of conversations. And I'll be honest, normally I find detailed discussions about resource economics to be pretty dry. 
like my mom's overcooked turkey breast dry. But as I learned more about the subject, I saw that the key to understanding the rising cost of food ultimately hinges on one core concept, supply chain logistics. So because of how agricultural supply chains work uh, and because of uh, the biology that is behind agricultural production, we can tend to predict and strategize uh, how long it's going to take to raise the number of birds that we need for Thanksgiving. That's a, that's a standard calculation that we've been doing for a very, very long time. Essentially, economists have spent decades fine-tuning models to predict exactly how many turkeys to raise for Thanksgiving, how much corn to feed them, and when they'll hit the grocery stores. Then COVID happened, and some people wanted smaller turkeys or no turkeys at all. The entire system got thrown off. Instead of us having Thanksgiving food the day before Thanksgiving at the grocery store, now that Thanksgiving food gets through the supply chain the day after Thanksgiving. It surprised me to learn that advancements in agricultural technology have actually helped lower the cost of raising turkeys significantly over the past 30 years. Historically speaking, these savings get passed on to the consumer. Yet this year, several issues along the supply chain mean your Thanksgiving bird will be quite a bit pricier. But why exactly are the supply chains so screwy right now? So the short answer is the reason that supply chains are still screwy right now is the coronavirus. And that wraps up another episode of Meeting 3. Thanks for tuning in. The long version is that the, the disruptions have come really in, in a, a couple different key pieces. Okay, there's a bit more to it. The first piece is labor. Uh, so we're, we're having, you know, this, this labor conversation that's been ongoing in agriculture and food production for many, many, many years. Um, but, but this ag labor story, a lot of it comes from the uncertainty around these low-wage workers. It's not a particularly exciting job to work in a restaurant all the time. It's an even less exciting job when you think you might be getting coronavirus as you work in that restaurant. Uh, same with the grocery store, you know, name the supply chain step with labor and we have that story. You may have heard about recent strikes at Kellogg's, Nabisco, and John Deere. The fact is, many food producers rely on low-wage workers all along the supply chain. When those workers demand fair wages and safe working conditions, the system sputters. The next piece of it is transportation. So transportation prices have risen even more than what the food prices have. So right now, the cost of long road trucking, for example, which is very important for supply chains, uh, that price has just gone through the roof domestically. And then internationally, that price is even higher than what it was two years ago. It's, it's absolutely incredible to see how expensive and how uncertain that shipping system can become. Um, and and we're, we're really experiencing an unprecedented moment there. And it's not just transportation costs either. The aluminum used in products like canned cranberry sauce, that's shot up too. Same with the cost of wooden pallets used in shipping. The third piece of the puzzle concerns volatility and consumer demand, which creates a kind of feedback loop with suppliers. Economists call this the bullwhip effect. And what the bullwhip effect says is that some small, unanticipated change in consumer demand for any product can create these long-term ripple effects throughout the supply chain as we move down the system. And so what we're experiencing right now is this bullwhip effect that's related to that wild change in, in consumer preferences you know, over the last year and a half that, that we just would not have anticipated prior to the pandemic. The pandemic dramatically altered how Americans consume food. Those kinds of rapid shifts in consumer preferences aren't something suppliers can anticipate, and we're feeling the effects of it now. 
Lastly, there's those devastating wildfires, droughts, and hurricanes that we dealt with all summer. Climate is, is baked into this entire conversation. You know, all everything and anything in agriculture is affected by climate. Uh, it might not be 100% direct, but there is an indirect or a direct impact of climate, no matter what supply chain we're talking about within the system. So what do you get when you combine labor issues, transportation delays, a pandemic, and a global climate crisis? Yeah, it's, a, it's like a perfect storm. Now that we have a better understanding of some supply chain issues, I wanted to return to something Dr. Malone said at the top of this segment. I will again point out that if you adjust for inflation, food has actually gotten cheaper over time. That applies to Thanksgiving, too. Every year, the American Farm Bureau Federation releases a survey detailing the cost of an average American Thanksgiving dinner. And the inflation-adjusted cost in the last few years is actually lower than it was at the start of the century. And, you know, one thing that I think economists maybe don't think about the psychology enough of this, you know, just because I can show you the numbers that say that the, the price of Thanksgiving is uh, technically you're not paying as much as you used to. It sure doesn't feel that way when I remember how much I spent last year and I see how much I spend this year. And when I go try to pick up that sauce that I like, that sauce is out. <laughs> and so now not only am I spending more money, but I'm not even getting the thing that I wanted. Um, the, the fickle thing about inflation is that inflation really takes off when we all realize that inflation is a thing. In theory, the concept of inflation can be useful for helping us contextualize food prices within a larger economic system. But in practice, those high prices often end up acting as a deterrent from purchasing goods. And that's especially true for lower income families who may have less income at their disposal anyway. For a lot of us, the Thanksgiving table will probably look different this year. The regular dinner table already does. But when we start to understand just how fragile these delicate food systems are, and how many things have to go right just to get food to our table, maybe we can be a little bit more thankful about what we do have, and that we can gather around a table at all. Thanksgiving may be looking expensive this year in the U.S., but it's even costlier when you're trying to throw together a Thanksgiving meal abroad. That said, a slice of pumpkin pie and a slab of turkey with cranberry can do a lot of good for an American away from home during Thanksgiving. Julian Smedley heaps on a healthy portion of nostalgia from France, where one American chef has established his own Thanksgiving tradition. I spent my first Thanksgiving away from home as a foreign exchange student in Paris. On Thanksgiving night, my study abroad program brought us out to a dinner at a restaurant that served the classics, turkey, pumpkin pie, gravy, and the fixins. I remember the meal as both heartwarming and bizarre, like a good forgery of a favorite painting. Looking back, it's got me wondering, who else is searching for a Thanksgiving fix abroad? I would say the clientele is like 50%, you know, well-heeled French people who want to experience what Thanksgiving is. And, you know, pretty well-heeled Americans, like, you know, it's, it's a tasting menu, so it's a bit more expensive, and it's like people that kind of get dressed up for the occasion. And That's Chef Braden Perkins of Sister Restaurants Verjou and Ellsworth in Paris. What started as Friendsgiving meals with fellow expats in the City of Lights became a Thanksgiving tasting menu by popular demand at Verjou in 2013 and was joined by a more casual Thanksgiving menu at Ellsworth when it opened in 2015. Braden was wary at first of Verjou becoming known as a theme restaurant. But his seasonal menus took well to the holiday, which he thinks of as a general celebration of the harvest. 
you know, we distilled what Thanksgiving was down to like three things, like pumpkin pie, for sure, turkey, obviously, and then like some sort of cranberry compote or like, you know, part of the meal. The only problem is that American ingredients are really hard to source. While French pumpkins, called potimarron, are a great substitute for the orange gourds Americans know and love, cranberries aren't really grown in France. The ones that are available are imported and many times more expensive than in the U.S. Ever committed to the theme, Braden decided to bite the bullet and shell out for cranberries. Last year, he used dried cranberries from Canada. Finally, when it comes to Thanksgiving meat, he's happy to keep it local. Turkey, in all my memories of like my parents and my grandparents making it, it's usually like super bland. It takes like overnight to cook and the turkeys here in france are maybe a sixth of the size of the ones in the u.s and they taste incredible and for one of the places that we order them they go out and hunt them and so like you're getting wild turkey with like a little bit of buckshot in them talk about an authentic harvest meal another authentic part of the american thanksgiving table is at play two politics i would say after the 2016 election it went from being maybe 15, 20 people on the waiting list to being like 800 people on the waiting list. And and the only thing I can attribute it to is that people were thinking about like going back to see Uncle Mike, you know, and Aunt Jilly and just thinking like, you know what, I don't want to have to like defend my position on Clinton. Like, I don't want to have to get into an argument about X, Y, Z. After the isolation of COVID-19 and with the U.S. borders now open to vaccinated people from France, Will expats overcome these uncomfortable political conversations to see their families? Braden's not sure. Reservations are somewhat down this year, but that could be due to renovations at both restaurants. Regardless of how many expats show up, whoever is there will surely be thankful to eat familiar foods, hear American accents, and have a moment to reflect on the simple beauty of a shared meal after a year and a half of pandemic blues. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a short break. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth has made specialty cheese in the rolling hills of Wisconsin for more than 30 years. With strong Swiss heritage, Roth is best known for its award-winning Alpine-style Grand Cru cheeses. Fresh Wisconsin milk, combined with expertise in affinage, is how Roth creates high-quality, great-tasting cheese year after year. In 2016, hard work paid off when out of over 2,000 contenders, Roth Grand Cru Serchois was named world champion at the World Cheese Championship. For more information, visit rothcheese.com. Welcome back to Meet and 3. You just heard about an expat bringing his take on classic Thanksgiving dishes abroad, but what about immigrants to the U.S. who want to bring their own cuisine to the Thanksgiving table? Andriana Chow speaks with Paola Ibarra, co-owner of Barra, a Mexico City-inspired restaurant in Boston, on how she approaches Thanksgiving. Like many immigrants, Thanksgiving wasn't a holiday growing up for me. It's not something we celebrate back home. Since I got to Boston, I've celebrated every year. I really like the, the Thanksgiving celebrations, how everything kind of stops, everybody goes with their families. 
it's a little strange to not have the family around uh, when everybody's doing family time, but it's very common for many uh, immigrants. So we do more a celebration that's more like a Thanksgiving thing. Uh, and the menu adapts uh, depending on who hosts and, and also what the invited guests uh, bring because uh, it's a little bit of a potluck. Not everybody is inclined to whip up their own dish this holiday season. This is where Thanksgiving takeout can come in. Bara offered a special Thanksgiving menu in 2020 for those who wanted something different or for those who wanted to revisit their traditional dishes. And this isn't just your regular roasted veg to go. So the menu for, for last year was a sopa de la milpa or a, a corn soup, a, a pierna enchilada or a ham or pork shoulder marinated with chiles and spices, then a pastel azteca, which uh, people could describe as a Mexican lasagna. So it's made... Uh, of course, uh, no pasta, it's tortillas and, and chiles, uh, corn, uh, uh, salsa, and cheese. Uh, sides that, that come out of our regular menu, sides are a, a big thing in Thanksgiving, no? It, uh, even if you do turkey or uh, more traditional things. So we were also selling our mashed potatoes, our esquites, and things that you could get on the side. And finally, uh, we included our pumpkin tamal, which is a dessert. Barra's 2020 Thanksgiving menu focused on foods that were commonly eaten during the holidays in Mexico or in Latin American countries. But sourcing authentic ingredients for the restaurant can be challenging. For example, we serve uh, cactus salads. We serve a lot of insects, uh, specifically with the salts for for the sipping options uh, or with the grasshoppers that the the company, sometimes a guacamole or or the tela dish. Uh, we've also been able to source uh, from California or locally uh, things like a, a good masa because we make the tortillas in the house. Because Bara opened shortly before we went into lockdown, 2020 was the first year that they offered a Thanksgiving special. As for this upcoming Thanksgiving, Bara is continuing that tradition with slight changes to the menu. With many restaurants like Bara offering Thanksgiving takeout and immigrant families integrating their own traditions, we are seeing more diverse dishes on the holiday table. Whether you choose to order takeout or prepare a meal from scratch, I think we can all agree that we celebrate the holidays with food we find comfort in. Barra's isn't the only restaurant open on Thanksgiving. Roughly 30% of restaurants stay open the day of. So what's it like to be working on a holiday that's all about spending time with family and friends? Zoe Denkla reached out to a restaurant employee who's worked on Thanksgiving to get the rundown. It was weird because I was here in the city and my family doesn't live here. And it it did make me feel homesick. I like baked a pumpkin pie the night before because I was just like in a spiral being like, I really wish I could be with my family. Because it's not even like I care very deeply about Thanksgiving, but I did really miss my family. That's Kendra Scott, who worked last year as a maitre d' at an upscale Italian restaurant in Brooklyn. I assumed the toughest part of working a holiday would be having to come in on a day many have off. Talking to Kendra, it wasn't just that. Let's just say the guest behavior didn't exactly scream holiday cheer. I remember like all of the wait staff coming up to me and just saying things like, you know, people are being like increasingly demanding and asking why like drinks at the bar are taking so long or like why, you know, the coffee isn't coming out exactly perfect. It's just like very difficult, especially around the holidays. People are, you know, getting together with family or they haven't seen their family. And 
they want everything to be like, you know, the Norman Rockwell painting, and it's never going to be that. In a restaurant, like, you know, you never know what's going to happen. Restaurants do make a good chunk of money over the holidays. On average, about a 200% increase in income. So, hypothetically, employees could earn some extra cash with more patrons, more tips. But does this hold true on the actual day of Thanksgiving? In a survey conducted last year by Toastab, only 4% of Americans said they'd be spending Thanksgiving out. This raises the question, should restaurants really even stay open on this last Thursday in November? No, absolutely not. It wasn't particularly like busy. The surfers didn't make any money. I made the same amount that I normally would. And I don't think like the amount of money that they made made up for the amount of hours that they like spent there or the amount of time that they weren't getting to go home for the holidays or whatever. And finally, a closing message from Kendra as we approach this quote-unquote season of giving. If you're going out to eat on Thanksgiving, tip more. Give your servers money because those people don't get to go home and see their families. Um, And hopefully you get to be with yours if you're out. And their wages kind of depend on it. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Special thanks this week to H. Conley, Brianna Brady, Isaac Furman, Julian Smedley, Andriana Chow, and Zoe Denkla. Meetin' Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Dylan Hoyer, Matt Patterson, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meetin' 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meetin' 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out. Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs>